It's Wednesday, June 20th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Jason Moser, from Motley Fool Special Ops, Mike Olson, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Gentlemen, happy first day of summer. First day of oh, summer, thank longest you. day of the year, right? Yeah, it is the longest day of the year. Wow, uh, someone did his homework when he was in high school. Nice work. I feel alive. It's hot outside. It is hot outside. Uh, we're going to talk about natural gas, consumer products, and the business of furniture. But we got to start with the Fed announcement, with, which just happened. Uh, uh, we held off on taping because, you know, out of respect to the Fed chairman. Uh, the Fed announced, Respect the beard. Always respect the beard. <laughs> the Fed announced an extension of a bond-buying stimulus program. It is a six-month program designed to give a little boost to the economy. Joe, I'll start with you. Is this going to help? Is this, is this just... You know, the Fed doing what little they can. Yeah, it's a bit of can kicking. It's not all that aggressive a move out of the Fed. There are a lot more weapons in their arsenal than this. You know, I think it just speaks to they're a little bit concerned about the economy here domestically and Europe at large. But it isn't the biggest move that we might end up seeing out of them. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, Mike, uh, you know, to Joe's point, it seems like. Maybe this is a, a somewhat bullish sign of the U.S. economy if, if the Fed is basically saying, you know, we're going to do a little bit here, but come on, it th- things aren't that bad. I would actually differ. And the reason <laughs> for that is they might well have been able to justify some more aggressive stimulus were it not for the fact that they are reserving whatever weapons they have. If you, ne- if you want monetary policy to be effective, you need to exceed expectations. And so by delivering somewhat below expectations... This is kind of their way of acknowledging that we're scared, and they're reserving what weapons they have, as Joe said, uh, for Europe. Jason, what do you think? Yeah, I think it was pretty much the ultimate cop-out of, we just don't know what in the world to do at this point, so we'll extend you know, the twist, so to speak, and... Yeah, I mean the the quantitative easing is still still you know in the in the barrel so to speak. They can still shoot that gun, but QE um, three somewhere down the y- line. You know, I mean the point of this is to kind of try to pin long term interest rates down. And well, hello, interest rates are you know super low already, and I don't know that they can really go any lower. So it does seem to be a yeah, just sort they of might be out. working to change that. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. if you wanted to take the conspiracy theorist view right here, we have the fiscal cliff looming. We have some pretty enormous problems with our deficit, and it might well result in more difficulties as Congress kind of works its way through or not these problems. And you could argue this is the Fed's way, way of buying down long-term rates and keeping costs of borrowing cheap. Joe? Yeah, we've just seen so many different packages from the Fed over the past few years and Treasury. It just, it's starting to really feel to me, and maybe I'm a little bit late to this game, but there's so much over-engineering of the economy going on at this point, so much fine-tuning that I, I can't help but think it's just creating more incremental problems. And I can't help but wonder what would happen if you know maybe these guys just stepped off a little bit and let things outplay play out naturally. It does just seem rather disappointing that we can't see just some fundamental growth. Instead, we have the markets that are hinging on whether or not there's going to be another round of quantitative easing. And, you know, when they hear the news that there's not, then everybody retreats and there's a sell-off. And and so it's it's, we're obviously still in a a situation where there's a a lot of uncertainty out there. Yeah. Well, the beautiful thing is, as long-term investors, we can benefit from all the people who are focused exactly on just, you know, what's happening this week with the Fed. And that's not how you should be thinking if you're, you know, a 5, 10, 20-year investor, exactly. which you should be. Uh, as I said, is it is the official start of summer. So let's talk about that heat. Natural gas futures rose to the highest price in nearly a month on speculation that hotter-than-average weather will increase demand from power plants to run air conditioning throughout the summer. 
Mike Olson, what is what does something like this mean for stocks in general and and in particular natural gas stocks? Right. So I think what we need we kind of need to frame the broader theme around natural gas, which is to say that natural gas markets are gratuitously oversupplied right now, and anything which at the margin results in higher consumption of natural gas is very good. I mean, based upon whatever the available storage for domestic natural gas is, there is a chance that natural gas will exceed available storage this summer, which would result in natural gas prices plummeting. So for natural gas stocks at the margin, this is a pretty good thing. If we're to take a longer view of this, I really like the sector right now. It is just beat up and that's when I, as a long-term investor, start looking at something. Joe, is it is it fair to say that uh, if you're working for a natural gas company that's publicly traded, you are rooting like hell for a really hot summer? Oh, absolutely. And I'm a I own a lot of different natural gas stocks. So while the heat is terrible, I'm I'm all for it. <laughs> You're also going to be pulling for a cold winter, too. But it's also worth noting with all of the power plants that function on coal at this point, and that's more or less being phased out, and they're retrofitting these plants so that they can operate on natural gas, which just lends itself to the hotter summer being you know better for natural gas as well. So it's interesting to see the two sides of the coin there with a hot summer uh, pushing natural gas prices up. What if we run into a an abnormally cold winter here this winter? You're going to see more or less the same effect. Right. And I think, well, that's the second part to that question, which is, the hot summer is good, but what you really want is the cold winter. Well, we certainly didn't have that last year. Um, uh, what are a couple of stocks to watch? And I'm, and I'm not looking necessarily, Mike, for recommendations like, I think this is a screaming buy. But it, you know, if you're looking... This is something you really hate. No, no, no. no. But, it, but if <laughs> you scream when but you if, say it. If you're looking at the natural gas sector and you're thinking, you know, as the summer progresses, this is a play that's, the, this is a scenario that's going to play out where we are having, I mean, it's a hot day today, but, mm. you know, if the next four weeks are this hot or even hotter, what are a couple of stocks to watch? Okay. Well, there are a few stocks that I like in this, this particular area. The first are the dry gas-focused exploration and production companies. Two, that have great management teams, relatively conservative leverage, History of allocating capital effectively in low-cost structures are Southwestern Energy and Ultra Petroleum. Disclosure, I own Ultra Petroleum. Another one, which is kind of a way to play on the broader theme, which is the recovery in drilling as prices move higher. Very solid competitive advantage, which I didn't like maybe about 10 to 15 percent ago, but I start to like a little bit more now is Halliburton. They've been absolutely scalped on higher-than-expected costs. I think that's a short-term issue. Longer term, their outlook is bright. They've really built out their suite of services. And at lower prices, they start to reflect a lot of the risk from the BP disaster, which could play in. Joe, you get yeah. a couple you're watching? Yeah, I own a couple of those. I like those. Another one worth watching is Range Resources. Uh, they're a natural gas producer predominantly in the Marcellus Shale up in Pennsylvania. Uh, one to watch if natural gas takes off. Jason? Yeah, I'll side with Mike on Halliburton there. I do like their get-everything-under-one-roof uh, concept that they're working on, really providing a lot of uh, a lot of great services. And then just another really uh, small play that I've followed for a good while, Carbo Ceramics, which is more of a play on the fracking movement itself. But, you know, they provide the, the fracking uh, propens for, for uh, the companies that, that go out there and do all those fracking operations like Schlumberger or Halliburton, whoever it may be. So. I knew we wouldn't get through this story without at least one reference to fracking. You get a safe frack. Uh, shares of Procter & Gamble down nearly 4% this morning after the company lowered guidance for the second time in less than two months. Joe Mager, this is an inside value stock, so I turn to you. What is going on here? Well, Procter & Gamble overplayed their hand on pricing when times were good. Uh, their premium products like 
Tide, Gillette, Pampers. They got about, what, 25 brands that do a billion dollars in sales. Huge conglomerate. Very strong pricing. Well, when the tide went out on the economy, they had to cut pricing on a lot of stuff. I was going to say, did you catch that pun? (laughs) (laughs) Brutal. Brutal. Uh, They had to cut prices, and they've lost some market share, and they're kind of reeling from that. And they're undergoing this huge cost-cutting program where they want to cut out $10 billion in cost per year. So they're really trying to redefine themselves after kind of getting what I would say is a little bit complacent going into the recession. And now they're having to do a little more innovation, a little more watching at the bottom line and, you know, the costs that are you know, stopping them from getting more down there. So, you know, better late than never for them to be making these changes. But ultimately, I do think it's still a very strong business. Uh, the yield right now is 3.7%, <clears throat> very steady. And I think if you get a long time horizon. If you're patient, they'll treat you pretty well. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think part of the the guidance cut is a little bit overplayed. It's currency, it's commodity costs, whatever. Those things I'm not particularly concerned about. One thing I am a little bit concerned about, and you don't want to think too hard about this, but the fact that management doesn't really seem to have a an excellent handle on what the direction of their business is. When you see two guidance cuts in such a short period of time, the indication is, you know, I don't know exactly what's going on. Now, if we're to zoom out, you know, 10,000 feet, does that really concern me in a business which is extraordinarily competitively advantaged and has an excellent long-term history of execution, like Procter & Gamble? No. However, it's something you want to be wary of because if this persists, you know, even Procter & Gamble is not, they aren't infallible. I was going to say, Joe, you look over the past year, and certainly when you look at the consumer product space, there are a lot of companies that are competing, a lot of big companies that are competing, Unilever, uh, Kimberly-Clark, Colgate-Palmolive, Johnson & Johnson, Um, all of them over the last year, their shares are are beating P&G. Is P&G having significant operational struggles, or is this just sort of a a short-term blip that if you're a long-term investor, you know what, now is actually the time to buy? I think a lot of it is short-term, but I do worry about some of the long-term moves they're making. So they're kind of pulling in their horns with emerging markets right now. I think that's exactly the opposite strategy. Now, in fairness, the, the reason they're doing it is because they want to rework their strategy, which you know, I guess is okay. But you look at a Colgate, for example, and they're really pressing hard into emerging markets because you, know, you establish relationships with consumers, with everyday brands like toothpaste or you know, with with diapers, with razor blades, you establish that relationship early, and that stays you know, for decades, teetering on centuries. That's extremely valuable, and it's worth taking the pain today of lower profits in exchange for that you know, durable franchise. And I just wish P&G would get back out there. Yeah, I think I think there is the uncertainty there of how Procter and Gamble is going to tackle that emerging markets uh, sector, whereas a company like Colgate Palmolive is doing a very effective job of getting that message out there. Over the long haul, though, I still think that Procter and Gamble is a well-run company, and these are the kinds of days uh, where investors need to consider taking advantage and buying. Because, yeah, for maybe the short term, cited it's it's not such a not such a good time, but. Yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of trashing it, but I do own a, own a good bit of it. And I think it's a great long-term hold, and I'm perfectly willing to, to sit on it for a while. Shares of Lazy Boy down 11% this morning after quarterly sales came in lower than analysts were expecting. Mike Olson, I thought I thought man caves were all the rage, <laughs> and, 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 and that being the case, I would think a company like Lazy Boy would just be crushing it lately. What, what happened here? Well, it turns out man caves and credit crises are mutually exclusive. <laughs> uh, it just wasn't a particularly good quarter. It was, in fact, totally uninspiring. After you netted out the effects of an extra week, 
gross profits down. There's not much of a recovery in their sales volumes or profits, despite what is broadly perceived as an improving economy. And so it begs the question, why and how are people not buying these things? I think this looks a lot like the Tempur-Pedic quarter we saw about a week ago, where shares were off 45% in the span of a day, where you ask yourself, A, is this a recurring purchase item and is there a demand for it? Which the answer, of course, is no. Um, and B, it's just, is this the type of business I would want to own for the long term on that basis? And, you know, this is not going to be a steady and consistent free cash flow generator. There are a lot of ways you can sit in a recliner, and Lazy Boy is not the only one. I can wean back in a lot of chairs. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, coming on the heels of talking about a company like Procter & Gamble, I mean, it, it, it seems like if you're an investor you would almost be making something of a philosophical choice to buy a company like Lazy Boy or Tempur-Pedic. You would, you would need some sort of um, significant shift in your thinking as opposed to like a P&G. It's, e- it's easy for me to get wrap my head around, oh, it, they make everyday products, they make razor blades, you know, that, that kind of thing versus, to your point, Mike, this is a company that makes things that people are going to buy maybe once every 10 years or, you know, if they're well-made, God forbid, once every 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just to add to that, you know, fashion tastes change. I mean, kidding aside, you look at the explosion of Ikea in the United States and there's a lot of competition right there. It's very affordable competition and Lazy Boy has been pretty behind the curve. Uh, You know, their revenue is down about 50% over the last 10 years. That sums it up pretty nicely and they've, they've really struggled and I've actually got a bit of a history with this one, not so big as I've sat in the chairs, but <laughs> five years ago it was an income investor wreck, and we cut it because we thought that at the time it was competitive situations, dynamics were just slowly fading, we didn't like long-term prospects, and it looks like it was a good move in hindsight. Yeah, I agree. I don't see what the competitive advantage is there. I mean, to me, there are plenty of companies out there that make recliners, so a Lazy Boy is just another chair to me, and it is just a one-time purchase probably might not buy another one in your entire life. Uh, so for me, while you know the stock may kind of hang around there, it's been rather flat over the last five years. I don't see any reason why I would put any money into it today. Yeah. Uh, going back to man caves, if you had if you had one, do you have one, Jason? Right now, I don't. The goal is when the girls are in college that I'll get one. Okay, all right. That's a yeah, while. start start while start ago. laying the ground. I can start planning now. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so what, what is uh, a piece of furniture you want? What's sort of like your dream furniture for your soon to be somewhere down the line man cave? I mean, one? I guess I'd love a pool table, but I think it would also be pretty cool to have something like a humidor beer tap combo. Where you have like a humidor and in a, a keg of Sam Adams or something right there, all in one, where you can just kind of make it all happen at one stop. That'd be pretty nice. Nice. Mike? What okay, so this is less conventional. So perhaps you've been to some of those vintage stores where they sell the old church pews. What I want to do is I want to make a bar where all the seats are old church pews. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's like the bar in Old Town. What? Yeah, the Irish, the Irish pub down there. Are those old church pews? I can't remember the name, but we've definitely been there. I'm sure. Down to oh, that like might be why we can't remember. Yeah. You know, it, it was Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine. So I, I, I think that would be fine. I think they'd be fine with the church pews in your bar. Uh, <laughs> sure. Joe, what about you? I would be happy with a couch. I'm in a tiny studio apartment with my <laughs> wife. We don't have a couch. It's really uncomfortable sometimes. We have people over. Oh, sit down on the bed with us. Would you settle it's for a lazy It's just an awkward 
way to start a conversation. I was, I was talking. Mac and I were talking about this before too. I would want one of those old school barber chairs. Uh, mm-hmm. A buddy of mine back home in his basement had one of those old school barber chairs that could flip back. Oh, incredibly, it's been around the thing all day long. Absolutely, <laughs> Joe Mager, Mike Olson, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thank thanks. you. Pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.